0: following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Over the last several weeks, now as we turn our, our, away from that to uh, what's going on in the sermon series, we've been looking at the Psalms for the Sojourn. It's the Psalms of Ascent, which are the Psalms written for the Jewish pilgrims who were leaving would three times a year. Three times a year, I would think about that. My mother gets mad at me because I don't go see her uh, often enough and because it's so busy. And it's an easy three and a half hour drive or so or, uh, to go see her. But this was three times a year, loading up your family, loading up all your stuff, shutting down your business, and heading to Jerusalem to worship God. To be a part of the corporate festivals that were there, of Passover and the festival of tents, and, and of all the remembrances of God's faithfulness. And so God in His great providence and His wisdom said, as you go, I'm going to give you a songbook. I'm going to give you things to recite in your mind, things to sing corporately together. I'm going to give you these songs that will remind you of a couple of things. And the thing that it most reminds us of is this. You're not citizens of this world. We are citizens of a different kingdom. We are citizens of heaven and therefore we get our marching orders, we get our DNA, uh, we get our culture, if you would, from a different place. There, there's a negative or pejorative statement that's said about Christians very often. That Christians are so heavenly minded that what? They're of no earthly good. That is just the opposite of what should be the case. It really should be, it's only when Christians are heavenly minded. That they're of any earthly good, Because it, it, it informs us, it, it shapes us on how we engage uh, in life. We've got a marriage seminar going on. And the gospel, our Heavenly Father who said that the best way for me to describe my relationship to you is through a husband and a wife coming together in marriage. That it says Christ married the bride, the church. And so we understand marriage in that way, that it's more than just two people committing together for as long as we both shall love. It's for as long as we both shall live together. There was a wonderful uh, Puritan writer who would sign all of his letters to his wife this way. Your husband for a season, your brother in Christ for all the time. He got it. He, he understood what it was about. It informs us of how we're supposed to, uh, our citizenship in heaven, our traveling as pilgrims uh, along the road uh, towards heaven, towards one day the new created heaven and earth. It informs us of how we're supposed to deal with the fallenness of this world. I find it fascinating if you start to read the news now uh, of these missionaries who've got the Ebola virus. Somehow in certain circles within the media, they're being vilified. Why would they be over there? Why are they now spending and using uh, tax dollars? Why are they coming and making it dangerous in Atlanta? And they're bringing this back uh, to our country. Those people should not have even gone over there. But they were Christians. And they realized this. Who should go? Someone with a worldview that said, this life is all you have. If this life is all I have and I've got to do everything I can in this life. If Lisa gets sick, I'm going to say, honey, I love you. And I'll see you later. Because I can't, but if I realize that this world isn't all I am, but that my citizenship is in another world, I can go into places where I may contract a disease and die. And do it without fear. And to do it with passion and right motive. You see, it's only when we're so heavenly minded uh, that then we become fearless, We become triumphant. We become heroic. Uh, We become these things that are so fantasized and romanticized in our culture. They can't get there any other way than through understanding who you are in Christ, and that you're walking on that road. As I've said, and this isn't a... Uh, I have to be careful not to use this as you know Bill's therapy time as I talk about my boys going to college, but as I think about my boys going to college, the only way that they're going to make it on, on a college campus, be it secular or Christian college, it doesn't matter. They're facing the same sins, they're facing the same temptation. The only way they're going to make it is if they realize that their citizenship is in heaven. And that they're called to live a different life within that place for Christ—a different standard, as we talked about last week. A different redeemer, a different way of viewing. Well, this week we're looking at Psalm 131, and the overarching theme of Psalm 131 is something that we—I I realize that I'm just—I'm just going over the ground that you're well com, uh, familiar with. Contentment. You guys have this down pat, I'm sure. Um, because it's a cultural norm uh, for folks to be content. We're just fine with how everything is. But if you're one of those few and select who not content, who wrestles with contentment, then David and the Lord and his great wisdom. Uh, the Lord, I probably need to step back. You guys are getting intimidated right up here. Um, these roads will be open every week, I guess. Um, but David, the shepherd king. David, the warrior king. At some point in his life, we don't know when. I imagine that it was probably later in his life, he wrote these three verses on contentment. And he basically said of himself, I've learned how to be content. This was probably the psalm and the words that drove Paul to write in Philippians, I've learned to be content. I've learned because I've known that that's something that's gained when I find Christ is a deep and profound contentment in this world. Here's the theme of how we're going to to look at this today. I love that it's three verses, so three parts, uh, three uh, things to write down. Don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think too little of yourself just think of yourself less those are the three points this week don't think too highly of yourself don't think too little or too lowly of yourself just think of yourself less easy well that's what we're going to look at uh, and the the psalmist writes these words this is the word of the lord and forevermore. Amen. This is God's Word. Sinclair Ferguson, the wonderful Christian theologian and pastor, wrote this about Christian contentment. Christian contentment means that my satisfaction is independent of my circumstances. When Paul speaks about his own contentment in Philippians 4, 11-13, which we spoke about, he uses a term Commonplace among the ancient Greek philosophical schools of Stoics and Cynics, in their vocabulary, contentment meant self sufficiency in the sense of independence from changing circumstances. You see, Paul was using word, and what we're looking at is a sense of our culture and philosophy says that you can be content, but it's outside of your circumstances. The only way to find contentment is to remove yourself, even uh, existentially, to remove yourself out of your circumstances and to find a peace, to find contentment and to settle your soul. And if you don't think this is rampant, even in the church today, uh, I uh, am a pastor's son. My father was a Presbyterian pastor. And I remember as a teenager uh, going to a retreat center at Montreat up in the North Carolina mountains. It was beautiful and wonderful. And we're on Lake Susan. And we're right there in the hotel. And we, my little breakout group from this conference, had the front room up looking out over it. The windows were open. And we were talking about contentment. How to find peace as teenagers. And you know what we were taught to do? To lie down on the ground. And to close our eyes. And through existential meditation to leave our bodies. And to go right out the windows like Peter Pan. And to head out over Lake Susan. And to cruise around. And to turn up the creek. And to move up the mountain. And just be at peace. Forgetting all of your service. This was church camp. You know where the teacher learned that? Probably from our pastor the theologians of that denomination. Because we've bought into a lie that contentment only comes independent of our circumstances. That's why so much of your prayer life is asking God to change your circumstance. You pray passionately for Him to change your circumstance. And it's not necessarily wrong to want circumstances changed. But if that is what is the key for you finding contentment, Paul says, as one pastor would put it, "It smells of smoke and from the pit of hell." We can find contentment, Christian contentment, within any circumstance. God promises that. That's what Paul. That's what David was explaining here. This shepherd king, this warrior king, was writing at some point in his life, maybe reflecting back. As he talked to Solomon and to his other children and to whoever would listen at that point to an old man about to go to see his maker. And he spoke about contentment. Ligan Duncan, one of my professors and a pastor in our denomination, wrote this about the song. Contentment is a pursuit that is easier spoken about than attainment. We can talk about contentment a lot, but to attain contentment. When you went to bed last night, were you truly at peace? Were you okay with everything that had transpired in that day and what was going to take place in this day? Or were you working up a mantra in your own mind? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep And if I die. I, whatever. If um, I my die. Before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. That didn't work. I pray the Lord my soul to take. Still not able to sleep. Now I lay you down to sleep, I pray. and you use it as a mantra. And you try to get yourself to contentment. I'm not saying that within any circumstance you can find contentment. Charles Spurgeon, the wonderful Baptist and um, English pastor, said this about the psalm It's a short ladder, but one that rises to great heights. It is one of the shortest psalms to read but one of the longest to learn. (laughs) Isn't that awesome? That guy was pretty good uh, at preaching. Fascinating thing on the side about Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrestled with massive depression. Spurgeon wrestled uh, with the highs and the lows. And you can imagine that he knew exactly what he was talking about. And he said, it's easy for me to talk about contentment. But when I'm ravaged by the fears of this world and the depression of this world, I forget it so quickly and so rapidly. What a great man he was. So now, taking those thoughts of contentment and putting it into the first thing that we said as our theme. Don't think too highly of yourself. Verse 1 says this. "O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things. Too great and too marvelous for me. What an incredible statement for any person to say. But then again, remember who is writing this. It's David, the king of Israel. David, the one, it says, who was passionate after God's own heart. This was David. And here he is writing and saying, Lord, my heart's not proud. My eyes are are not haughty. They're not haughty. And I don't occupy myself with things that are too great for me. Basically, David was addressing uh, three things in here. James Montgomery Boyce, the wonderful pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, wrote in his commentary that the three things you learn out of that first verse uh, was one of the greatest difficulties uh, in our lives is that we think too much of ourselves. We can't be content in that way because it leads us into pride. And then the second thing that it leads us to is arrogance. And finally, the third thing it leads us to is ambition. So don't think too highly of yourself. Proud. He said, my heart is not proud. My heart is not lifted up. It is not filled within me. I'm not too full of myself. I don't think of myself all that much anymore, is what he was saying. Because I'm not concerned about those things anymore, interesting anymore. Because if you go back and you read uh, the story of David, even when he showed up at the, at the fight with Goliath and the battle that was going on, he showed up and you would think that his brothers would be happy to see him. But Goliath, his oldest brother, or one of his old brothers, looked at him and he said, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And he said, I know why you're here. And he said these words. I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch about. Them. Now, Eliab was probably wrong at some level. He was an older brother There's sometimes a sibling. How many of you have a sibling? Do they know you pretty well? Or they don't know you perfectly. So they make some assumptions. So Eliab wasn't, that wasn't a perfect picture of David, but you can get a good picture of David. And Eliab said, you're conceited. You're conceited to put it in another light way. You're, you're a conceited little punk. And you came out here just to watch. You came out here just to get some popcorn and candy and sit around and gawk at, at Goliath as he walked out and as he mocked God's people. You're a conceited young man, David. David says, I'm not conceited anymore. I probably once was. I was proud in that way. And pride is such a, a, an enemy of contentment. Because what pride basically says, and it moves right in uh, to the second uh, thought there. Uh, pride is that thing which uh, we need to address more than any other characteristic in the Christian faith. The scriptures say that God opposes the proud and He's drawn to the heart. He's drawn, excuse me, to the humble. God opposes the proud. How many of you admit regularly in your confessional before the Lord, God, break my pride? I'm a prideful woman. I want things as I want them to be. I love it when people talk about me. I love it when I'm the center of attention. Think about who do you like to talk about more than anybody else? You and your family and all the things that are happening to you and all of that stuff. We joke around in our homes that all of life is middle school. It's all junior high. Because if a junior high student goes out and catches a fish and goes and tells his friend about the fish he caught, guess what the friend's going to say? Oh, well, that's nothing. I caught a bigger fish. And then the third friend's going to jump in and go, well, that's nothing. I caught ten fish. And then the other friend's going to go, that's nothing. My dad owns all the fish. He's a fisherman. He has a boat and all that. And it's always about me. You're inserting yourself into the middle, and it has to be about you. I remember as a young man uh, that as I was daydreaming, I wouldn't have these wild and grotesque daydreams. People would go, what are you daydreaming about? What do you think about? I was always the quarterback who was going to throw the pass at the end of the game. And everybody's going, yeah, that's awesome. I went to a college with like 980 people and a really horrible football team. And so it wasn't about that. I went through being somewhere else, you know, of dreaming about that. Because I wanted it. You know what happens when you daydream and you dream about those things where you're the center of it? You use all of your energy. You use all of that. Put yourself in a place you were never designed to be. And then guess what? When you wake up from that daydream you know, and you look around at what you have, you're not are disappointed. disappointed. Because the daydream hasn't come true. So David's saying pride. My heart isn't pride. My, my heart isn't lifted up. And he said, and I'm also not daring. That they're very similar. They're, they're bedfellows, if you would. Arrogance, my eyes are not haughty. The word haughty comes from uh, the, the derivative of the word high. My eyes are not high. My eyes are not lifted up. Basically what David's saying here is, my eyes, I have not placed myself in a position above you, God, to look down on, on you, to look down and to look in and to peer into your decisions, to peer into your character. I'm not placing myself above you and then making judgments on who you are and what you do. My eyes aren't haughty. They haven't been lifted up. Many of us wrestle in this way. Because here's what we say. We don't use the word haughty anymore. Maybe we should reintroduce it uh, into our language. But we think this way. Hey, Lord, if you had just consulted with me, you could have saved yourself and me a whole bunch of trouble. Because I had a much better plan. ...for what was going to happen and go on. And, and if you had just sort of talked with me, you would have I, I would have been able to tell you that that wasn't a good idea. Because the only way to say that is what? To be above it. It is to have a higher horizon. The only way a parent can say to a child when the child is about to go run out into the street... ...and the parent sees what's coming up the road is the parent has a higher horizon... The parent looks out and says, there's a car coming, and the car is coming at such a rate of speed, and it doesn't see you because that person is texting, uh, and they're looking around, and they're jamming, and they're doing all this. So if you run out in the street, sweetie, you're going to get run over. And you know what the child says? Thank you, mother. Thank you, father, for having my best interest in mind. Thank you for helping me save my life. I so appreciate that. The child goes, I want to go with the dog on the street. Why are you keeping me from my freedom? What kind of repressive parents are you? My friends are playing in the street. My friends are doing all of this. All of these things are why Why are you not letting me do it? The child has then put their horizon above yours. And they've said, I know more than you do, Mom. I know more than you do, Dad. They're haughty. Their eyes are lifted up. They're
1: demanding
0: answers to questions that they don't have the right to. I didn't answer. That's what a haughty eyes are about. Haughty eyes uh, say something like this: "I wonder if David maybe wrestled with this." God, I was anointed to be king. How come I had to wait so long? God, I was anointed to be king, and Saul hated me, and he persecuted me, and he pursued me. People thought I was crazy. Lord, it was a terrible situation. What were you thinking? Was that really your best plan? Or maybe after he made a mistake and and committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband and then took her into his own home to try to cover her pregnancy and the child was born and the child died. If any of you have lost a child, any of you have lost a loved one, it's so easy to God, why? I demand to know why this happened. I know I messed up. I know I'm sinful. I know this happened over here. But why my child? Why my child? Why my family? Why my wife? Why my husband? Why, why God? And I can't be satisfied until you answer that. So God, I need you to answer it. I'll keep going to church. I'll keep tithing. I'll keep doing it. But I just want you to know, God, you and me aren't right. There is no peace here. I am not content until you answer me this. It's haughtiness. The arrogance and the pride that's mixed in. David says, you'll never be content if you think of yourself that way. Or if you're an ambitious person third point under that first idea. He says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. You see, overcoming ambition does not mean that David did not want to achieve anything, or that we should be passive and do nothing. David is simply rejecting an ambition that goes beyond what God has for him at any given time. That kind of ambition is going beyond what God has for you at that time. Ambition uh, is As one writer put it, as Eugene Peterson said, it, it is aspiration gone crazy. Ambition is aspiration gone crazy. Uh, it is taking aspiration, is, which is a desire to do great things. It is a desire to please God. It is a desire to be successful in your business work. It is a desire to have a happy and healthy home life. It's a desire to be the best player you can be on your team and the best student and all those. Those are good things. Those are good aspirations. Paul said, I-, I press on towards the goal. I aspire to that. Ambition is aspiration gone crazy because then it's all about you. I've got to have that. I must have that. My contentment and my happiness is based upon that, and I will gain it at whatever cost. Some of you here, I imagine, you have had an incredibly successful careers. And I wonder if, at any level, you carry regret for the things that it took to get to the place where you were. But you're ambitious, and it didn't matter who was in your way. You were going to find them in order to get what you want. You were going to do whatever was necessary to gain the goal of being filling one. You were going to do. It. That's what Eugene Peterson says: is aspiration gone. You kind of see it going crazy. But it's all about you. You have become the center of that. That's what David is saying. You're thinking too much of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. You got that? That's easy, right? So you can go home today and not think too much about yourself. But here's what's probably going to happen. You're going to get home and you're going to I promise you, somebody in this room is going to be frustrated in the parking lot. Because somebody didn't let you out. Somebody cut you off. Because it's about you. Don't they know I've got to get someplace? Don't they know that I've got to go do something? Isn't that why you're frustrated in parking lots? Uh, maybe what we can do is everyone can stand around and go, no, oh, after you. No, after you. And, uh, we'll see. See how well this takes. But on the flip side of don't think too highly of yourself, uh, we, he would also say don't think too little of yourself, verse 2. But I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child with my soul within me. But David was also saying, you don't want to think too highly of yourself, but you don't want to see yourself uh, as so infantile, so desperately needy, uh, so desperate uh, and so, so small in your vision that you view God incorrectly and you view yourself incorrectly. But what he's saying there is this picture of a weaned child. It's a wonderful description. It, it describes the child that would be at its mother's breast. And the dependence and the necessity uh, of that child to its mother. And that's a good characteristic for a Christian that we're dependent upon God. But he says, no, but we're a we child that is there next to its mother. And sees its mother not as a means to an end, but enjoys its mother just for being its mother. When it's hungry and the mother doesn't respond immediately to it, doesn't vilify the When all of a sudden it wants something and it doesn't get it immediately, it doesn't say, you're not good. You don't have my best intentions in mind. You're not really a good God. You see, when we're an infant and we view God in that way, it is good to say that we're dependent upon God. But at the other side of it, Paul is saying, I wish you would grow from your infancy. I wish you would move on and beyond the fact of thinking that you have to have everything you want, when you want it, and how you want it. And you ring your bell with God. And you say, God, answer. And when He doesn't answer, you vilify Him. He must not really be good. He must not really love me in, in this way. And what's happening in your life at that point, when God is telling you to wait... When God is telling you, I've got you, but you're not going to get it on your time. Parents, does that sound familiar at all? Spouses, does that sound familiar at all? Hey, dinner's coming. Just chill. Just wait. But You know, if you're the parent of teenagers, you realize that feeding is more of a grazing effort. Uh, It just sort of starts in the morning and just sort of continues on until they finally fall asleep with a bag of Cheetos hidden somewhere in the room where they're not supposed to have it. And when you tell your children, hey, kids, it's time to put on your big boy pants. It's time to play adult. And adults just don't get to do this all day long. They don't just get to demand this. So there's going to be kitchen hours. And there's going to be this time at breakfast and this time at lunch and this time in the evening. And other than that, uh, it's closed. And so you're on your own. And guess what your kids are going to do at that point? Well, that's unfair. What do you mean to little bit? This is terrible. Oh, I don't understand this. I got a phone call from one of my sons, who shockingly is already out of money. And he said, Dad, we need to talk about this meal plan that you bought us. I was like, this meal plan? You mean this $1,800 meal plan that's supposed to feed you three squares a day, seven days a week? That one? Yeah, it doesn't really cover weekends very well, so I need you to send me an allowance. I was like, really? And uh, he said, yeah. Yeah. I said, buddy, are you kidding me? He said, no. Like you worked all summer. Where's all your money? Ooh, uh, uh, you know, spend on something else. And i go, like, oh, well, don't use my credit card for that. Figure something out. Get a job. Do something else. And you know what he didn't say? Dad, thank you for helping me move into up. The <laughs> Because guess what we're doing with him and him? Weaning. To say it's time to be an adult. And as an adult, maybe you should look at your resources better and think that the second week of school is not a good time to go home. Now I can say that because currently he's not here and I promise you he won't listen to the sermon. But we think of ourselves that way. We're just, we just have to have what we have to have when we have to have it. Don't we? We are incredible powers. Well, what's wrong with you? You can away. I can pout really well. Maybe my bottom lip doesn't come all the way up, but I can pout really well. You know, I didn't get my way when I wanted it. And I get frustrated with Lisa. And I get frustrated with people around me. And I get frustrated with my staff. And you know what? We do that with God. And God is trying to say to you, folks, you're thinking too little of yourself. You're not a child. You're not a baby. Grow up. Wean yourself from me in this way. I still am your sustenance. But you need to be satisfied in me just for me. Not for what I give you. Don't love me just because I bless you. (coughs) Don't love me just because I respond to your needs. Love me because I am. Because I'm God. Because I'm your Savior, because I am who I said that I am, love me for that. Be satisfied in me for who I am and be contented at my side. Not constantly tugging at me, going, I want more, I want more, I need more, I need more, I need more. That's what David's saying. Don't think so little of yourself that you're a child still. That you're a little infant, but so often that's how we act. Like little babies. And we don't get away. We you know. Church wasn't exactly how I wanted it. They didn't pray the songs I wanted to pray, play. The children's ministry wasn't exactly what I wanted. These chairs aren't very comfortable. Yeah. I mean, the is kind of loud. We get, we just pout. We're really good at pouting in every venue of our life. And David and the Lord is saying this. Folks, we are thinking too little of yourself. Grow up. Grow up into maturity is what Paul said. Oh, I just I would so love it if you would grow want and desire infinite, immediate, and more glorious things. I've got to move quickly, but I do want to say this. How many of you have read uh, Rick Warren's uh, Purpose Driven Life? A a large portion of you. The best-selling book of all time in in, uh, Christian writing. It's a wonderful book, but it's sad that for some of you that's the only Christian book you've read. Let me ask another question. How many of you have attempted to read a Jonathan Edwards sermon? Oh, good, not nearly as many. Uh, I promise you this, if you want to grow in your spiritual life, quit reading just the popular writers of today in Christian. Book. Move on to some folks who are going to challenge you to move into a deeper understanding of what it means to be in a relationship with God. Challenge yourself up. Grow deeper in some of those things. Read the other things, fine, but challenge yourself up. So the first thing, don't think too highly of yourself, and think too little of yourself. Just think of yourself less. And what do I mean by this? He says there at the end, in verse 3, so beautifully, O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. What do you say, folks? I just want you to think of yourself less and think of God more. I just want you to, to experience what the Puritans said was the expulsive power of a new affection. Isn't that great language? The expulsive power of a new affection. That when a new affection takes root, it expels, it's expulsive, it expels all other passions and affections. Uh, when you uh, were uh, looking around the room one night or one day and you saw your beloved walk in and you went, wow. And you began to have an affection. I can still remember uh, on New Year's Eve in 1991. Of walking into church and seeing this incredibly beautiful uh, brunette, long hair, playing uh, the guitar up on the stage. And I was like, wow. I'd met her before, but it was like, wow. And four weeks later, we were engaged. And five months later, we were married. And I realized that guess what happens when you fall in love with your spouse? It expels all of their affections, it puts them in their places other than the one for Christ. It says of all old girlfriends, all friends, parents, even siblings, you've been removed as the most important human relationship that I have. Parents, just as the side, be careful. When you have a new child, that child is not the center of your marriage. Your spouse is. Don't allow that child to become the expulsive <laughs> new center of your world. Children are a wonderful addition. And God is saying, I need to be a and if you consider me, and you trust in me, from this time forth and forevermore, I'll put everything else in the perspective for you. I'll be able to give you a peace that passes understanding. I'll allow you, I will give you uh, an ability to be content in whatever comes. And you can just rest in me. You don't have to be afraid. Just trust in me. You don't have to be afraid. Uh, I've said to folks for years, and here's your homework. Many of you, things are going pretty well for you, right? Life's good. Family's good. Kids are going well. Things are good. Business is picking back up. Folks are around. For those of you you are very excited, the folks are leaving the island uh, now <laughs> to get your island back. And, and things are good. And, and you've though written back somewhere, there's this sinister little statement. And it says, I'm just waiting for the other shoe." to drop. Too many of you live your lives waiting for another shoe, And you can never be content if you're afraid that. it. Well, it's going good today, but I'm sure somebody's going to die tomorrow. It's going good today, but something bad's going to happen. You've you bought into this. Here's your homework: go home and write it. I've told you this before. Put it up on your wall. There is no other shoe. You get that? There is no other shoe. You can be content in knowing that God has you right here, and He's taking care of you right here from this time. And forever. Are you content? No. Look into your own heart and ask some big questions today. What is blocking your content? What is blocking you from being content? And ask God to dig down in there. And when He brings something to mind, here's what you need to do. Don't just acknowledge it, repent. Because whatever that is is what you're demanding. And you're saying of God, I'm not satisfied in you. I'm only satisfied in plus this. And we need to repent of whatever the plus is. It's a challenge. But I think David would say in his latter years, folks, it's a good place to be. Good. Father, thank you. Thank you that you offer to us something that our culture and society can never handle. But no matter how hard we work in our world, there's somebody better than us. No matter how much money we make, uh, there's always more to be made in the fear of losing it. No matter what happens in this world, the bait is here for a moment and gone. God, would we put our faith and our trust in the one who was and is and will always be you, who created all things, and will be with us from this time forth.